simply called why we didn't quit. And the main thing is the church must be a leading voice in American society. Uh, last year on my Facebook page, I, I posted the, the, uh, the, the following thing. And uh, it, it says, church member number one, pastor, why in the world are you reopening church services so soon? Church member number two, pastor, why in the world did you ever shut down church service in the first place? Two weeks ago, church member number one, pastor, you don't seem to be care about the struggles of minorities. Church member number two, pastor, why haven't you been more supportive of the police? One week ago, church member number one, require masks. Pastor, clearly you don't care about human lives. Church member two, require masks. Pastor, you, clear, you clearly don't care about human liberty. This week, Lord, are you sure you don't want me to sell cars? And when, when I saw that, I, I didn't even laugh. I really didn't because that was what I was living day in and day out same uh, the entire year last year and still to some extent now. Uh, JK and I were talking about how we didn't really realize uh, how much last year affected us until we kind of started to come out of it and we pretty much realized that most, most, much of last year we were suffering some form of depression, uh, both of us. And, and, and what hurt the most and, and what hurt, still hurts the most today was watching people that I dearly loved use compliance to a governmental decree as criteria for whether or not I was even a Christian or whether or not they were going to call me a friend anymore. There were many times just wanted to throw in the towel, to quit, let it be someone else's problem, let someone else worry about it, let someone else take the heat, let someone else make a decision that no matter what we decided, half the church would have a problem with it. Let someone else do it. Let someone else try to lead a congregation, win the lost, build community, make disciples while the government and at least half this community didn't want us even meeting together, let alone living in community together. Let someone else try to do this job when you're not allowed to do your job. That's where I was last year. Let someone else feel the absence of friends I used to see every Sunday morning, and I wonder if I'll ever see them again. Those thoughts rolled through my head every minute of every day last year, and to some extent now. And if we did our job and stayed faithful to the Lord's command to meet together, all it would take would be several people getting COVID from one of our worship gatherings, and we're nationwide news. Now you just see the headline, pastor hates his church members and tries to kill them. Because there's always somebody salivating to see a church fall. However, I was reading last year in the book of Esther, in the Old Testament, a man named Mordecai uncovered a plot to kill all the Jewish people. Uh, it just so happened that the king who ordered this had one of his queens was named Esther, who was Jewish. And so she had the king's ear, so Mordecai went to her and told her about it. And then he said this in Esther 3, 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But, your father, but your, you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. God knew the pandemic would hit this country in this area in 2020. He didn't, it didn't take him by surprise. God's, God placed us downtown, the exact middle of the city, in 2015. Perhaps he was just looking to fill an empty building, or maybe he placed us here for a reason and for this very time in history, for such a time as this. Perhaps he placed us here at this time to be uh, and placed to be at the center of this city to be a light of hope and encouragement and, and faith in the midst of a world consumed with fear and panic and division. Perhaps he places here to demonstrate courage and steadfastness in the face of adversity that people needed to see. James 1, 1 uh, 12 says this, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And what, I, what I'm concerned about, however, 
is that the church had an amazing opportunity to be a leading voice in society. You and I did, and I feel like in general we missed it. A time of almost universal fear, concern, worry, anxiety. What alternative vision did the church present? How do we communicate the truths of Scripture during this past year? How do we communicate faith and wisdom Lack of worry, lack of anxiety, lack of fear. Did we communicate those things at all as a church? We didn't quit because in spite of all the stress and tension and infighting and all of that, the church must be a leading voice in society. If not us, then who? We started 13 years ago because we believe the church needs to be influential. We, we need to be a force, reaching lost people, speaking truth to this culture, being an influencer. Unfortunately, the church in general has not been the influencer that it needs to be. Not because we don't have a message, but because we stopped preaching that message. If you have two advisors telling you the same thing, one of them's unnecessary. True? If both the church and Hollywood and mass media are saying the same thing, one of them's unnecessary. When the church is saying the same thing as government, when the church is, promotes the same values and beliefs that we see in commercials and, and, and mass media, society will decide that the church is unnecessary. Why go to church when you can go to a movie and hear the same stuff? Culture has decided that the church is unnecessary, not because we're preaching Christ in the cross, because we stopped preaching Christ in the cross. Church, it will be irrelevant, not because we preach the cross, because we preach the culture. And that's what many have started doing. So in this day and age, it's imperative we communicate an alternative vision for life to this community, to this world. And that's what Jesus did. To a world bogged down in legalism and regulations and rules and sin, he preached a message of grace, of relationship with God, surrendering 100% of ourselves to him and to his purposes. So on this 13th birthday of this church, there are five things our church must continue to communicate to this world. Five things. Number one, that we must be communicating to this world. That's why we didn't quit, because the world needs these messages. Number one, salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is a radical departure from what people like to hear in society. Matter of fact, it's probably the most offensive claim the church can ever make. It's seen as arrogant, intolerant, and downright wrong to say that one thing is wrong and another thing is right, isn't it? When people ask me, are, are, are you arrogant enough to say that only Christians will go to heaven? I mean, uh, uh, it, do you really believe that? And my answer is, it doesn't matter if I believe that. The question is, did Jesus believe that? Because here's a, here's a good logical criteria to follow. If we're believers in Christ, if he believes something, we should probably believe it too. Is that fair? I mean, that's what Christians do, right? So did Jesus believe himself to be the only way to heaven? The answer is a resounding yes. He says it right here. He says, he says in John 14, 6, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You say, well, well Dave, talk is cheap. Actions are more important than, than words. I'm like, yes, they are. After he states it, he goes to the cross. Now, if Jesus believed other belief systems to be equally valid, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism, if, if, if those were all just valid, just as, as valid as Christianity, if he believed that, then he would have just said, go do that. He would have told us to follow the five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of Buddhism, worship the 30 million Hindu gods, and he wouldn't have gone to the cross. 
But Jesus knew the only way was through the cross. That's why he did that. So, there was no other way. Therefore, the church, church, the arrogance is not found in stating that Jesus is the only way. The arrogance is found in followers of Christ saying that they know better than Jesus himself, or that they know something that Jesus didn't know. And until Jesus tells us something different, we will continue to preach this very thing that Christ preached, that salvation is found in no one else. And if we don't get this right as a church, then nothing else really matters. Why do missions if everybody's okay? Why did he call, command us to go into all the world and make disciples if everybody's okay? None of that makes sense unless Christ is the only way. Now, our church must continue to preach Christ, and Christ alone is the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We must continue to preach that. The second thing that we must communicate to this world is blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Psalm 33, 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. In other words, blessed is the nation that do things God's way. We need to communicate to this culture that God is better. You say, God is better. Better than what? Yes. What? Better than money? Yes. Better than comfort? Yes. Better than wealth? Yes. Better than sports? Yes. Better than music? Better than leisure? Yes. God is better. His ways are better. A nation that does things according to the Bible, a nation that conducts itself as God wishes it to conduct itself will be a blessed place, the happiest place on earth. John Adams, our second president, founding father, Christian statesman, one of the people who founded this country, said this, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book. Every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged and conscious to temperance and frugality and industry, to justice and kindness and charity towards his fellow men, to piety and love and reverence toward Almighty God. In this commonwealth, no man would impair his health by gluttony or drunkenness or lust. No man would sacrifice his most precious time to cards or any other trifling or mean amusement no man would steal or lie or in any way defraud his neighbor um, but would live in peace and goodwill with all men no man would blaspheme his maker or profane his worship but with a rational and manly a sincere and unaffected piety and devotion would reign in all hearts what a utopia what a paradise would this region be this is one of the guys that set this whole thing up this whole country up He's one of the guys that put the Constitution together. He's the one that said, listen, if we do things as God intends, this place will be amazing. And then he went on to say this. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, and revenge would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the governments of any other. One of the guys that set this thing up realized that freedom and liberty are contingent on a people capable of policing themselves. Not needing laws and not needing rules, but capable of policing themselves. That is the, what liberty and freedom is based upon. And when, freedom, when, when, when people are no longer capable of policing themselves, all freedom and liberty will go by the wayside. We will lose everything that we hold dear. 
Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We, we will have freedom and liberty when we align our conduct with the word of God. When we live life surrender to his will, when we do things as he commands us to do, we will be a blessed people. When we depart from God's ways, when we live in rebellion to his word, when we thumb our nose at his commands and say we're going to do our own thing, we will lose all that we hold dear. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, and this church must communicate that to this culture that is in open and outright rebellion against him. We have to provide an alternative vision for this society. Number three, people should focus on getting their own houses in order. 1 Peter 4.17 writes this, For if it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I remember sitting in class um, uh, hearing secular humanists declare that religion, specifically Christianity, was the cause of all the intolerance and hate and judgment in the culture. They implied that if religion were to exit stage left, a new utopia would emerge it's a tolerant, loving, kind, inclusive world. Devoid of unforgiveness, intolerance, and judgment. It's almost like listening to John Lennon's Imagine, which is the worst song that has ever been written or recorded. I believe that, and I'm not the only one. As America and Western society have moved away from faith, what are we seeing? What are we seeing? Are we seeing our nation becoming more loving, more kind, more tolerant, more grace-filled, more forgiving? No. No, we are not. We become obsessed with policing others. Cancel culture is now the new thing. It's rise is directly correlated to its rise. It's directly correlated to the decline of Christianity in Western culture. Do we really think differently? Grace is the central tenet of Christianity. It's one of Jesus' central teachings. Do you think we could kick Jesus out of the culture and his teaching on grace and forgiveness remain? How foolish. Now, America's become obsessed with uniformity, canceling anything we don't want to hear, our speech becoming less free. Someone takes something, uh, our motives don't even matter. If someone takes something the wrong way, even if the intentions, when nothing was intended, you are guilty. And when I say guilty, I mean guilty. And you must grovel before the thought police. And you will receive no forgiveness. Even an apology is not acceptable. You must be canceled. Our nation is going the way of the Soviet Union, North Korea, Cuba, uniformity and conformity demanded and nothing else is tolerated. And, other, and others, of course, not ourselves. It's others' behavior we must be obsessed with, not ours. The actions of others. And it's our, our business now to judge, to condemn, to call out. We will can tolerate no deviation whatsoever from the parting line, from the approved list. And what happens if someone does say something that is against the party line that we don't want to hear? Well, we could be mature and move on. That's what people used to do until about 10 years ago. My sophomore year in college, 1993, the TV show called NYPD Blue came out on television. Now, it was the first TV show in the history of network television to show nudity. And I remember there being quite a, lot, a big outcry against this. It was uh, several Christian leaders, including James Dobson, a focus on the family, spoke out against it. You know what they were told? If you don't like it, don't watch it. And so people didn't watch it. 
By the way, if any of you millennials or Gen Zers or younger wonder why no one my age can ever get offended by anything, this is why. We had comedian Sam Kennison, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, and the kingpin, Andrew Dice Clay. We had Mel Brooks movies. We even Saturday morning cartoons we watched. I don't think there was anything back then that wasn't offensive. Nothing. It was like TV's and movies' job was to offend us as much as we possibly could. If we didn't like it, we turned it off. That's what we did. We were told if you don't like it, don't watch it. Music on the radio and on MTV. Yes, MTV used to play music, you all. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um, it's music television. People are like, no way, really? Yeah, really. And so, songs on radio and MTV, you know, sang and rapped about sex and drugs and gangs and murder. We were told if you don't like it, don't listen to it. And we didn't. And that was it. And now the culture's changed. Now our culture believes it has a right not to be offended. It has the right to live in society and not hear, see, or exposed to anything it doesn't like. And many have taken on the role of society of policing the lives, beliefs, thoughts, words, and actions of others. And I believe the church must speak out against this. First of all, it's unwise. To police someone else's actions and beliefs is unwise. Because cancel culture, the policing of other people's thoughts and words and actions leads to decreased freedom for everyone. If you have the power to censor someone, to cancel someone, what happens when someone else has that power and does that to you? If you cede the power to censor and cancel someone, what happens when the, when the enemy or the opposite has the power and cancels you, uses their standards to pose upon you? Who knows what standards the people in power will have? Second of all, it's impossible. You can't change the beliefs and actions of others. You can only change one person, yourself. And third, it's self-destructive. Canceling other people is self-destructive. If you're the kind of person who feels the need to police the words and actions and beliefs of others, you'll find yourself very lonely in life. Newsflash, people don't like being told what to do. They tire very quickly of self-righteousness and hall monitors wagging their fingers at people. People won't walk on eggshells around you. If they aren't safe to be themselves, they'll move away from you. Instead, our society spends its energy focusing on getting its own house in order. Instead of being so consumed with what everyone else is saying, we should focus on getting our own houses in order. Instead of policing the speech of others, we should police our own speech. We should watch what comes out of our mouths. Instead of policing the, the, the actions of others, we should work on our own family. We should invest in our own marriages. We should invest in our own churches. We should invest in the work of the kingdom. Stop focusing on the shortcomings of others and deal with your own shortcomings, the church needs to tell the society. I wish people would spend a little less time focusing on the political incorrectness of others and a little more time focusing on, say, their prayer life with God. Their study of Scripture their own lack of forgiveness, their own idolatry, the things we put in front of God, their own, uh, the, the, the message of the church to a society that's increasingly consumed with the behavior of others should be this, get your own house in order first. Let's get our marriages right. Let's get our parenthood right. Let's get our finances right. Let's get our relationship with Christ right. Get our own houses, our own lives, our own neighborhoods right. The obsession with words and actions of others has reached a fever pitch. All the while, our own lives are falling apart. Maybe in the year 2021, our motto needs to be, I'll only fix one person, myself. 
People should focus on getting their own houses in order, and the church needs to be a voice telling people to do that. Number four, we must bring grace back into the society. Colossians 3, 12 through 14, it's a fitting message for this day and age. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Like I said before, our culture has become less tolerant, more judgmental, less forgiving, and more dogmatic than at any time I've ever seen. As Western culture moves away from faith, secular humanists of the 90s and 2000s have been shown to have been wrong. We have seen grace exit this culture. One, one big result of a graceless culture, an increasingly graceless culture, is that people will no longer be real around you. If you are a graceless person and you, were, you have a graceless home and you are in a graceless church, there will be nothing but fake people for you to see. Why? Because they aren't safe to be real. I was on staff at a church that was devoid of grace. Well, they proclaimed great God's grace, talked about it. They just didn't do it. I remember apologizing to a family about something. I can't even remember what it was. Something stupid, probably. I did a lot of that stuff when I was younger. And I, said, I remember saying, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I screwed up. That's on me. And they looked at me with silence. And the silence turned to contempt. How pathetic their eyes told me. And then the man said, well, that just shows why you shouldn't be on staff here. Well, after a few run-ins like that, I vowed never to admit to anything. I could shoot somebody in the lobby in front of 100 people and not fess up to it. That's the point I was at. Because a graceless culture breeds fake people. Graceless people produce withdrawn people. If you're a person who's always complaining about seeing everybody fake out there, oh, everybody's just so fake. You heard that? Oh, man, I'm so tired of all these fake people. You might want to look in the mirror and see if you're a graceless person. You're not safe to apologize to. You're not safe to be human around. Think about it. If someone comes to you and, bl- and, and admits a fault or, or asks your forgiveness and you just blast them with both barrels, what did you just teach them? Just taught them not to come to you. They're going to continue to make mistakes because they're human. They're just not going to come to you. They're not going to admit it. They're going to, they're going to put up the wall, and they're, going to, they're, they're never going to admit to anything. And all you're going to see is a bunch of fake people. See, that's what happens when grace leaves a culture. That's what happens when grace leaves a family or grace leaves a church. People don't all of a sudden become better. They become more withdrawn, less real. And that's the graceless society we live in. That's what people are experiencing out in the world today. We have people losing jobs over tweets they made 10 years ago when they were teenagers. Graceless society we live in. The church has an amazing opportunity to take the concept of grace, of forgiveness, to this culture that is increasingly bent on doing nothing but punishing itself. Paul writes us to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, to bear with one another and forgive one another if anyone has a a, a grievance against anyone. What a radical statement to make to a culture that is so self-righteous that it can't allow people to make mistakes. Oh, the arrogance of graceless people. The arrogance of the unforgiving so self-righteous that they believe they'll never need what they refuse to extend to other people. 
so convinced of their own morality, they see no future in which someone would need to forgive them for something. We as a church must bring grace back into society. It's this judgmental, unforgiving, bent on canceling world what it means to forgive, to overlook an insult, to respond with love when someone attacks. Teach this culture obsessed with making people pay at any cost, it seems, what it means to be the recipients of grace. It starts in our homes, in our individual interactions with others. And the fifth one, the thing we must communicate to this culture is this. This world is not our home, so don't get too comfortable here. Philippians 3, 18 through 21, Paul writes this, For as I have often told you before and now tell you even again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their, destination, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their God glories in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. One of the things that has become increasingly obvious this year and this year too, last year and this year, is that society cannot handle the concept of death. We can't. But human beings are pretty amazing creatures, and we can adapt to just about anything. We really can but we simply cannot handle this concept of death. I take that back. We can't handle the concept of our own death. We can't handle the thought that we today, we are today, one day closer to our death than we were yesterday. The day we were born, people, we started to die. Death rate is 100%. And we handle that concept so poorly. I don't blame the world. I don't blame non-Christians. I, I really don't. Uh, many non-Christians still believe in hell. And they're self-aware enough to know that either they don't have Jesus or by their own morality they're not very good people. So they think that hell is their, their, their eternity. And that needlessly, needlessly, uh, obviously will scare people. And, and, and thought of death is awful and repulsive. Others who don't believe in hell still think this life is all there is, and the, the thought of not existing uh, is, is terrifying to them. I know. I've sat at the bedside of dying atheists, and, and all, uh, all the bravado, all the intellectual arguments, all the assurance, all out the window, nothing but fear and terrified, being terrified. I understand non-Christians and atheists not being able to handle the concept of death. I get that. I really do. But I don't understand Christians not being able to handle it. All throughout Scripture, we're implored not to see this life as, 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 as our home. The Bible calls us sojourners, travelers that are here for a temporary amount of time. Uh, it tells us that our life is a temporary mist that appears for a while and then is gone. Uh, we're simply passing through this life. We're never meant to stay here forever. The Bible is full of that. This past year, we were told of our impending deaths many times. Many times per day, actually. Media, in order to make sure they maximize revenue by their own admission, made sure to let us know every minute of every day why we should be paralyzed with fear. Now we were all going to die. They got extremely wealthy off the ratings. It was was a good business model. It really was. I've never seen in my 46 years on this planet the amount of fear I saw last year. Now. I saw how desperately our world desires just to stay safe, just to stay alive. Fear of death hung over our community. 
in our nation, in our world all year long. Church had the opportunity to be a leading voice. The church had the opportunity to preach the gospel. That death does not have the final say. That we worship a risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who conquered death. Not to cling to this life, but not to invest our entire selves here. Isn't that the message of the gospel? Isn't that the message of the church for 2,000 years? To put our hope and our trust in Christ and Christ alone? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to the brevity of life, to the, so the solution to the fear that so many were feeling now over the concept of death. The church should under con understand the concept of death better than anyone else. We have, as the hymn says, peace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That's what the church needs to communicate to this world. And have we? And that's why we're here. Every person in here, we're all going to die one of these days. That's not a grim fact. That's just the truth. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. That's not the question. The question is, are you going to live? Everyone's going to die. But are you really going to live? So many of us stopped living last year. So many of us aren't living now. We're not because we're afraid of death. And the church has an answer to that. The church has the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two babies, two twins were in their mother's womb. As they grew and they grew, one of them said to the other, I've heard that we're going to be born. What do you think that's like? The second one said, I don't know, but I know that's what we're supposed to do. The first one said, I don't want to be born. I like it here. Second one said, I've heard there's a lot more room out there. Apparently you get to walk, you get to talk, you get to play sports, you get to taste food. Apparently we get really tall, the baby said. We get to fall in love. We get to have friends. I mean, it sounds awesome. The first one said, no, this is all I know. I don't want to be born. Second one said, I don't think we have a choice. We weren't meant to stay here inside mom. This is a temporary location for us. Out there, when that's where we're supposed to be. First one started crying. Second one started smiling, and the contractions started. One was paralyzed with fear. The other couldn't wait, and they were born. Twenty years later, the twins met on a park bench, and they were talking. The first one said, do you remember the conversation we had right before we were born? First one said, yeah. The second one said, well, what do you think now? The first one said, yeah. If I had known how awesome this place is, I wouldn't have been so fearful about leaving the womb. I think the same words will come out of our mouths when we arrive in heaven. We'll look at this life on earth 
Kind of like baby looked at the womb. Why would I have ever wanted to stay there? This is where we belong. When we arrive in heaven, we'll wonder why we so clung to this life, why we were so obsessed with making it here when we have that for eternity. And that is the message that the church must continue to preach to this culture. I want to invite the band to come on back up. We knew how awesome heaven was. We wouldn't have looked at this, at this concept of death so fearfully. We would look at it like a baby being born, like a marathon runner crossing the finish line, like a graduation from high school and college. That's what death really is in the eyes of a Christian, in the eyes of someone surrendered to Jesus Christ. It's not the end. It's simply the beginning, and we take the words of the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, and we live it out. To live while I am living, while my heart is beating, while my lungs are breathing, I will be about the work of Christ, and if I die, I gain. But I'm not going to live in compromised fear, fearing for something, fearing losing something I was never intended to hold on to in the first place. This is the message the church must preach, continually speak to this culture. We have the answers. That's why we didn't quit. That's why we didn't throw in the towel because this culture needs those five messages. Until the day I die, we will continue to preach that here at Catalyst Christian Church. Let me pray for you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for, the, for calling your church to be a lighthouse in a storm, to be, be a, a beacon of hope and encouragement and, and, and love and truth to a culture that's just drowning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for calling us your own. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for assuring us that heaven is our eventual home. And Lord, I pray if there are people here today that do not have that assurance, I pray that they will become followers of yours this morning. We love you, Lord. Please hear us as our praises and our worship rises up to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.